Happy New Year, everyone! Welcome back to the Construction Approach to Animal Welfare and Training Podcast. We are your host, I am Masa. Hi, everybody, and I'm Sean. We hope that you're enjoying the beginning of 2022 and that you're cuddled up with your animal companions and ready for this exciting episode. Before we begin, we have a couple of announcements. We open up the registration for the Cout Book Club. That's right. This is going to be a really fun experience for everybody. We're going to get together, read, explore, and discuss Dr. Joe Lang's new book, Nonlinear Contingency Analysis Going Beyond Cognition and Behavior in Clinical Practice. That's right. And we start this book club in the middle of February. So if you're interested, please check the link that we will put on the description below. And the second one is the Cow Conference is coming up in July from July 25th to July 30th. So please mark your calendar and we will put the bio and abstract soon. So check our website as well. That's right. And also, our membership is still open and open for anybody to register. And if you are a Cout member, you actually get free access to our book club and 50% off of the Cout conference coming up in July. So please check the description. We'll put a link in there also to get access to the membership. Exactly. Lastly, we will be presenting at ABAI conference coming up this May in Boston. That's right. We've got, I think, like five symposium and, and like over 15 talks being given about the constructional approach by all sorts of different amazing people. So please check out the ABAI website and maybe we will see you guys in Boston. Yes. In today's episode, we will have an interview with Dr. Susan Friedman. Dr. Susan Friedman is a psychology professor at Utah State University who has pioneered the application of applied behavior analysis, ABA, to captive and companion animals. ABA, with its roots in human learning, offers a scientifically sound teaching technology and ethical standard that can improve the lives of all learners. Students from 55 different countries have participated in Susan's online courses, Living and Learning with Animals for Professionals. And living and learning with parrots for caregivers. She has written chapters on learning and behavior for five veterinary texts and is a frequent contributor to popular magazines. Her articles appear around the world in 15 languages. Susan has presented seminars for a wide variety of professional organizations around the world, such as the Association of Avian Veterinarians, the European Association of Zoos and Aquaria. Moore Park College Exotic Animal Training and Management Program, and NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. She has been nominated for the Media Award given by the International Association of Behavior Analysis for her efforts to disseminate to pet owners, veterinarians, animal trainers, and zookeepers the essential tools they need to empower and enrich the lives of the animals in their care. So please enjoy our interview with Dr. Susan Friedman. Thank you for being here with us today. To get us started and help the audience get to know you a little bit,、um, could you please、uh, tell us a little bit about what it is that brought you into behavior analysis and animal training? Yeah, you know, it is a, a great opening question for us to get to know each other better and for your listeners to get to know me better. But I don't, I don't have a story that is cogent as many times as I've been asked. 
it, it seems to me when I look back on my path that it's really a blur <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and um, I can't identify um, moments. Maybe I'm just not creative enough or have good enough recall to string the pearls in my life on one thread. It's more like opening a drawer of just pearls that have broken off the thread and it would be hard for me to reconstruct that necklace. Um, I know that I was always a very anti-authoritarian child, but oddly, I got along very, very well with my mother because she was a scientist. She was a science thinker. And so she was very logical and very fair, very predictable in her approach to her parenting. And so maybe that was really the ground, you know, that I grew up in having um, an affinity for the logical and the fair, you know. Um, I was always in trouble in school. I was the kid who snuck back in during recess to get a jar to put a caterpillar in. <laughs> and then the caterpillar, and then the jar broke. The caterpillar was okay, but the, they, they found the broken glass. Somehow, I don't know how, they, they nailed me for the, for the infraction. They found out it was me and my broken jar. Um, I was a very poor student all the way through high school. And um, all throughout that, Um, pushing back on people telling me what to do. I had a mom who really honored that. And so she just kept teaching me these skills of independence and uh, of my own authority. Um, And so it was just a really great match. And then by the time I got into um, college and took uh, my first psych course, it was the chapter on behaviorism that really rang an immediate bell of familiarity to me. Um, because of, of it being a natural science, I now understand we're observing these principles all the time. So when we read them in a book, they're familiar because they have been what's been shaping our behavior all along. That's very different than when you read the chapter on Gestalt psychology or Freudian psychology. These would be new ideas because they're based on constructs as opposed to the natural world. And so I had this immediate familiarity with that, that information. And that's when I started moving in that direction. Um, and then out of college, I uh, ended up getting hired at Spalding Youth Center uh, for kids that earned the label of the day. You know, it was behavior disordered, emotionally disturbed. They were... Largely, the unit I worked with were teen juvenile delinquents of the most extreme inner city misbehaviors. And the director was Wells Hively. He and Ogden Lindsley were Skinner's first education students. And so my first 90 days was uh, uh, homework to read um, Whaley and Malott's book on behavior analysis. I don't know if you've even ever seen it. I bought an old copy of it the other day just to have it kind of archived. And um, I had a trainer who would go over the homework assignments with me and just help me start descending into this um, really appealing, really empowering uh, view of, of how behavior works. And then we were applying it to the children in this treatment center who there was a 90 um, staff autistic unit that I eventually ended up being the training coordinator for. I was in the um, 
behavior disorder, emotional disturbance group. Um, and it was a remarkable, that was a, a remarkable step off of terra firma into something completely um, new and important and, you know, useful. So maybe that's where, that's where the first really big pearl got put on that string. Um, yeah, and then from there, I've been hanging with behavior analysts ever since. Uh, with a five-year break in living in Africa, Southern Africa, a country called Lesotho. Wow. And I was the principal of the American school there. So I was able to try and reflect the things I had learned from the residential center with the teachers there and um, catch kids being good, you know, <laughs> go for those, go for the right behaviors and spend much less time on the wrong behaviors. Um, Having my two daughters was another great laboratory. <laughs> they grew up knowing they were in the Friedman Laboratory. And um, I even remember a neighbor saying, aren't you afraid, given the way you're raising them, that they won't fit in anywhere? And uh, I mean, without any hesitation, it was so clear to me. My answer was, I only worry for my daughters not fitting in if you don't change the way you're raising your daughters. You know, if we can do this together, then nobody's going to be, you know, in jeopardy. And they both turned out fine. You'll meet them someday. They show up at Clicker Expo where, where, whenever they can. And um, seem to have fared pretty well with a behavior analyst, an applied behavior analyst mom. So, yeah. And then it moved to animals. I was a professor in special ed or psychology for the remaining years before and after the five years in Africa. And uh, one day I just looked up and realized that I was tired of teaching graduate students. If I can be that honest, it had been a long time. And I was looking for somewhere else to put behavior analysis. And uh, I met the right people at the right time. Um, Steve Martin was a person early on. I met Jesus at an early Clicker Expo in Minnesota and Karen. And uh, yeah, things just started to, to click. Yeah. Does fun, that give fun, you some I, some ideas? I mean, it's such a hard thing to describe succinctly. Yeah. No, no, that's that's beautiful. A lifetime. Wow. I, I love it too because it, it seems like so many of the of the great minds in our field share that kind of common history of kind of being a little bit of a misfit and not really <laughs> kind of fitting in the the square holes with our round pegs and. Absolutely. And, uh, and it, it does seem like in, in a large way, sometimes that equips you with a way to look at things a little bit differently than maybe some of the other people around, which makes collaborating and working with others, you know, so much more fruitful. Yeah. And I think we're searching, you know, I can, I early on can identify that searching behavior, uh, you know, being in the principal's office and wondering how does this happen? <laughs> you know, I just simply didn't want to draw the snail shape for the 55th time in a row, you know, um, so that I think what dovetails with that not fitting in is searching for why and where you will. Yeah. exactly. So, yeah, I think it is, it is probably a common background now that you mentioned that. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, in, in this story that you lay out, it really does frame kind of beautifully where this thirst of yours, this knowledge and search for it and, and continuing education comes from. 
you know, having the science-based background firmly planted with you from your mom and mm-hmm. even moving into education, you know, that seems to automatically put you in a place where you're going to have to continue refining and continue learning. And that's actually how I met you, you know, meeting you at a international conference, <laughs> you know, where you were yeah. visiting um, the, the young students of, of Jesus as the work of students up there and looking at the presentations and posters. Um, I remember the posters now that you mention it. Yeah, walking by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he always has his students have a make a really good presence at those conferences. And it's for these kinds of reasons. He wants us to get in front of people where we're going to find the masters in the field and get the really good feedback from them. But, yeah, he's a fine mentor. Many of us are aware. Uh, I listen to his students talk about him with such love and respect. And those posters are a good tangible measure of, uh, yeah, making sure that the students are out there experiencing all the rest of us and are heard. Yeah, exactly. And, and this kind of piggybacks into my other question I wanted to ask you. And, you know, what is it that keeps that search of yours alive still today? And, and related to it, you know, a, a lot of folks, when they've been in the field for years and years and years, you can start to feel a little burnt out or, or plateaued in your knowledge that you've obtained. And what advice might you have for those folks um, who feel that way and might be looking to find another, you know, thirst for that knowledge? It's so interesting. Um, again, it's one of those big questions that I haven't identified a clear answer to. Um, but, but it is interesting for me to reflect on it. I, I do feel like I have never stopped seeking more information, you know, always learning. At Clicker Expo, I'm always spending my time going to the other presenters' talks and being amazed by them and picking up lots of application information and philosophical information about how, how we work. Um, I, I think it's hard if you're always looking for new information, it's hard to plateau because that new information is always coming. So it is never the same. You know, not a single day of my life is the same as any other day in terms of the amazing behavioral events that float by and the information that's new to me. I find it completely unexpected. I had no idea that at this stage in my life, um, that I would still be finding new information every single day. So, you know, I pull up Gold Diamond's constructional approach to refresh myself with the five questions that are so dear to your scheme. And I see that there's a a word there that I'm unfamiliar with. And so I said, well, let me just, I've got a minute, let me just check on that word. And then that word leads me to um, something about Sidman. And then I think, oh yeah, you know, Sidman defines coercion, that'll be useful. And so I look at Sidman's article and then he describes something else and I go, you know, and so there's really, it's never the same. Uh, And so maybe the question, the more interesting question is, what are the contingencies that produce the apathy? in people who are in the field for this long, because I think it's really clear why we would remain excited and amazed uh, by behavior on this planet. So switching from humans uh, as my focal group to um, animals was a great injection of new fresh air, a new application, you know, energy. 
because um, when I started 25 years ago, the uh, companion animal world um, in particular was very punishment oriented. And the zoo world was just taking a toe out of the um, keeper husbandry, keep your animals well fed and clean as the main job objective description and just beginning to think about how training might improve the welfare of their animals. So it was, you know, right at the beginning of this big energy. I don't know. I wish I had something pithy for you, but I'm just kind of that, you know, the ordinary human going through life saying, this is an incredible place to be. (laughs) And uh, I'm amazed. I have this joke that someday I'll get called up to where I really come from, some other planet, and and they'll ask me to download all my experiences of what life on Earth is like. (laughs) And I'll be able to say, it's like endlessly, endlessly amazing. New information comes your way every single day. So I wonder, why do you think people don't experience it that way. You know, when you say this, it, 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 it you know, it, it strikes me right in my heart because that really gets to the meat of what I really love in behavior analysis and what I also love to bring to the families that we're consulting with. <clears throat> and um, this also, it, it, it comes from what, what we learned in the constructional approach and specifically in Jesus's um, constructional mentoring lab where we would use the constructional questionnaire and work with parents with children with disabilities and students that were struggling. But, um, you know, um, a lot of the teachers I work with, too, they suffer this same type of a situation. I think teachers and trainers, they, as educators themselves, they sometimes face a lot of funny situations because you will run into cases that you can fix easily, that you're well-trained for and your history has well-prepared you for, and then you encounter these other cases that you don't have the repertoires for, and it can be really disheartening, and it can make you feel like you're not really good at that field, and you can start to now miss reinforcers that are available, and then when you're even making the successes that you're good at, it starts to feel mundane. And so one thing I used to do with a lot of the teachers, and it seems like this is the answer, you know, that you're asking for, you know, for the animal trainers as well. And I think the key is to actually help them find reinforcers that are available within the career set that they're working in. That was one thing that we did with the teachers is sit around and we would go through our constructional logs and ask our questions with each other. And we would start to help each other to program more opportunities for reinforcement within our classrooms. So maybe the same thing. Fundamental. It also dawns on me listening to you that in a way, my response was very um, self-centered and naive because one of the reasons why I'm able to experience uh, joy and surprise every day with new information is that I have the freedom to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't work for anyone. I work for me. And so every day I wake up, I should, this is sound terrible, boastful, but it's an insight, you know, that part of accessing reinforces is the freedom to access them. That's right. And the repertoire, as you say, to control those reinforcers with our behavior. And I have uh, related to that anti-authoritarian little Susie, <laughs> you know, I now have that maximum freedom that I really was fighting for my whole life um, as a child. 
where I can get up, get my cup of coffee, sit down and say, oh, I think I'll start with Sean and Moss's stuff. And, oh, I'll go to Sidman. And then, oh, here's an interesting schema. And I'll go over here and here. And who gets to do that? So, you know, most people who are feeling unhappy or apathetic and unenthusiastic are getting up when the alarm rings and going to work. And even if they have the vision for how they might change their interactions with children and other learners, don't always have that kind of freedom. So that's where those five questions really begin, right? Is helping people identify. Yeah, that, that, that. Um, that what you just said is so deep, you know, like the there's this paper that was uh, written by a very great per two people from Brazilian University oh. in Brazil. And then they they explain what gold diamond meant by degrees of freedom, degrees of coercion, what's genuine freedom. And then Joe right. also talks about this in the presentation. Right. It's like freedom is not determined by. It's determined by lots of variable. You have to first have occasion or antecedent, and you have to have yes. repertoire, and then the consequence that needs to be available. So your right. your um, example of your life really represent you have occasion, multiple occasion, multiple uh, re- repertoire that you have established over the years, and then consequence that you're looking for. So yeah, to program your life to be... Susan Freedom Alive. <laughs> you have to have I the have occasion. To say. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah, beautiful. It, wow. Yeah, and that's a great way to to frame it with our with our science and with Gold Diamond's constructional approach and the relevance yeah. of degrees of freedom. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, exactly <laughs> so. So your work in helping people see, you know, how they could arrange for the occasion, the the, the repertoire. To be able to contact reinforcers right. is is it? Yeah, I think that's our that's our beginning unit, right? And it just gets bigger from there, right? right. Exactly, exactly. So our next question is: Looking at the trajectory animal training has been for the past fifty years, we can see a constant evolution towards less punitive and restrictive procedure towards procedures that are less intrusive and more liberating for the animals. And undoubtedly, you are one of those that are a big part of this evolution. How were you able to make such a large impact and what have been some of the biggest challenges involved? Yeah, um, you're the, another really interesting question. You, you pose very thoughtful questions. And um, the truth is that I never perceived large impact until recently, until very recently, Um, which is kind of a a delightful way to have moved through the last 25 years. I'm a person who I'm aware of all the really giant, big, enormous, um, ragingly important questions on the planet, Mm -hmm. climate change and Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter and neuroatypical um, consciousness raising and the Me Too movement and and on and on, you know, hungry children and in Africa, which I was so close to for so long. And I have to admit that I do not have the repertoire to manage the big questions, although I love to be near people who do. And um, I 
I'm quietly sitting by their side, just trying to awesomely pick what I can. But I, I describe myself as a very small paintbrush person, not the big house brush person. And so I just pick up that tiny little brush and I work on that one little part of the mural that presents itself to me that I have something that I can offer. And so that's what I did. You know, I started out with companion parrots because I got a parrot when we came back from Africa. And I, like any good scholar, I collected all the information possible and read every little thing ever written about having a parrot as a pet which I think generally is a very bad idea. My consciousness has been raised. Flighted birds in a living room, it's it's not a high probability success. But at any rate, we've had them for 20 and 25 years now, so we move on. Um, And most of the uh, literature, 99% of it was popular magazines, was pet store level um, experts who had a good nose for psychology, a good nose for behavior, but were really um, representing the what I call the cultural fog or what Gunnar Myrtle, the Nobel laureate from the 40s, coined the phrase that I've borrowed, um, cultural fog. Um, that has us making mistakes no matter how carefully we apply our science, right? And um, it, it was so punishment-oriented, and I had just finished building that school in Africa, you know, we're building the program in the school in Africa, um, where we set up programs uh, for high rates of positive reinforcement for children being greatly involved in their own destinies and that sort of thing. And from that came right into this world of if your parrot bites, you throw it on the floor. If you offer a hand, don't leave until that parrot steps on your hand. In fact, one of the leaders of the day actually wrote in an article, well, you wouldn't let your kid decide whether to take a bath or go to school. And my, my answer, I actually quoted that um, unsighted and quoted it in a, the end of a veterinary text chapter I wrote um, saying, Act to that question, I have to answer now. In fact, I would not force my child to take a bath. I would arrange the environment. So taking a bath was reinforcing. And if my child didn't want to go to school, I wouldn't force them. I would start investigating the data as to why they chose to behave in ways that escaped going to school. So this, what is to us just part of our lifestyle, really. Our lifestyle, our worldview, our philosophy of life was unknown to so many people. And I didn't know that. Because I came up in it so young from from my mother's strategies and style, you know, falling right into Wells Hively um, and going from there. I didn't realize that people were advocating things like forcing parrots onto their hands. So the more that I learned about that, the more the, the, the draw was, right? That was the pull, was the feeling that um, I was holding information from our science that would make big differences if I could just get it out. So the first few articles that I wrote have other people's names on them because I never imagined I would ever be a presence in that world. I was just helping any way I could help, right? Um, And then slowly but surely, yeah, that door opened and people started to notice what I can teach my bird through shaping with pine nuts or something. 
to come onto my hand. And that part of that process is to let them off my hand if they choose to go off. And that by letting them off, they're more likely to come back on. What? And so it was really, you know, one of the right people at the right time. And I feel like I just kind of dove through that little opening of the aperture of people looking up and saying, maybe there is other ways of doing this that aren't nutty. You know, what you're what you're talking about, too, I I just got to say that is a huge monstrously big impact <laughs> and and it and it touches back to on something that you mentioned right at the beginning and in, in our first question where you were talking about seeing that behavior can be based on the natural world rather than on constructs because i think that that lends a little bit of to that cultural fog that you were speaking to that might keep someone from trying or, or learning or thinking about behavior especially with their animals in a different view and um, what you, you really did, like when I came into animal training, the person that was all over TV and, you know, writing all the books and doing the whole celebrity animal training thing, it was Caesar Milan. And, and so my whole first introduction to animal training in general came through that. I was watching his TV shows, reading all his books. I could tell you why he did anything he did back then. And, um, but the thing is, is the one good thing that that show does. And the one thing that really moved me about it was just the basic idea that your behavior, the things that you do, your interaction with your animals can have an impact on their behavior. But what you're really doing is taking that same idea, but saying you don't have to force and punish all of that bad behavior. You you can actually make things enjoyable for your critter and they will behave out of seeking that enjoy that enjoyable interaction. Absolutely. And this is hugely unknown in our society at large, our world at large. So we're holding, it's like, I think of, you know, if somebody was a better marketer of behavior analysis, which we have needed the whole, my whole career, we've needed a better marketer marketing strategy um, than, uh, rolling our eyes and punishing people when they use the word mind, you know? Uh Um, But I think of it really as it's like, we're holding this secret. It's, it's, it's so crazy because it is so um, ingrained in our every cell to see the world through this frame to discover that in fact, essentially no one sees it, that culture has produced such a thick fog Mm. that people think, I mean, even And you may have heard me talk about this, you know, even our most beloved icon of Noah's Ark, you know, and every animal species is different from every other. And yet we're holding the secret, which is, in fact, although that's true from that level of analysis, there's a whole other thing going on that's beautiful. Everybody on that Ark is the same. And that's about how they learn right? How their behavior moves through space and time, through experience. Um, And so that's really how I've tried to sort of sell that social marketing of the other side of the coin. People are so prepared to see animals from a more ethology base, even though they might not recognize that. The 
differences two by two, you know, what makes a breed of dog different than another breed of dog and, and that kind of thing. And I think that's one of the rings on our target are those generalities, the population generalities. But when you're teaching and training, the bullseye is going to be the science of behavior change. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's been something else to disseminate. I love I love what you're saying right there too. It it reminds me of Masa actually she's been she worked really really hard developing these really 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 good um we're calling them intro to behavior science classes. And they're really blue books classes. Masa read through the blue books recently and started making classwork that would teach people the material inside those chapters. Fantastic. And so the first class goes through the first six chapters of the blue books. And one of the big things that Gold Diamond talks about in there is that behavior can be a function of any number of things. He says it can be a function of genetics. It can be a function of organics, like a like like brain structure that you have or a lesion that you might have or something like That's that. That's right. Um, he says it can also be a function of drugs. It can be a function of schedules. It can be a function of consequences. It can be a function of anything that we choose to actually assign functional value to. Now, the thing is, is that just because behavior has been shown to be a function of genetics or like breed or something like that, doesn't mean that that behavior can't also be a function of schedules or consequences. Yeah. And, and so that, that to me is really liberating because it allows anyone coming from any background of saying behavior is a function of this or this or this to say, okay, maybe it is, but can it also be a function That's of right. these consequences that we can arrange? I think that there's, there's a, a, a demand, a challenge going on for us that all of us who are teaching and working in this area are sharing, and that is to develop very skilled ways to deliver our material yeah. that get us out from behind the clockwork orange behavior analyst as a puppeteer, um, which we, that argument keeps coming out of the coffin. Every time we bury it, it stays buried for 20 years and then it comes out again. And I was very definitely shaped by working with um, people who had a more zoology, biology, ethology bent. Um, and that's how I learned. This was not part of my behavior analysis training. It was part of being shaped by the, the um, professionals that I was finding myself working with. Um, and, and that's where I learned to talk about levels of analysis, that this a behavior analysis, the behavior environment is one level of analysis. There are other levels of analysis and that no account of behavior is complete without bringing together multiple levels of analysis. And then I explain that um, the ethological level of analysis has a different focus and what that focus is, and that our level of analysis has the learning focus and um, the medical model, you know, has their focus. So that covers some of the things that you described. And I talk about behavior as the result of at least three things is your genetics, which includes your brain and your body and uh, your learning history and current conditions. And then make the big, you know, the big play for. So what can you do something about now to help that animal? Yeah. Is it their genetics? Is it that their learning history? 
the rationale for focusing on current behavior environment relations is because that's where our power lies to do good. And we have to let geneticists and neuroscientists and so forth sort of catch up. You know, Carl Cini, my current mentor, I would be happy to say, lives in this town. And um, so we have dinner every Sunday and he's about 87 years old. And so every Sunday I'm just filled with challenges, debates, being told I'm wrong (laughs) and and how I could be better and writer. And it's just delicious. It's the best Sundays ever. Um, And that's one of my sources of new learning all the time. And he said to me um, last year at one of these infamous Sunday meals that we as behavior analysts know more about how behavior works than the neuroscientists know about how the brain works at this point in time. And I thought, oh, my gosh, or the geneticists know about genes, because those are two fields that are radically being turned over upside down with new information. We don't talk about genes as blueprints. We understand the environment influences genes and neurons. You know, everything is being upset in those fields. They're having raging debates within the sub schools in those fields. And here we are, a relatively steady ship. Our variability, even though we're bringing in new things, are not changing the fundamentals. They're changing the nuances. So I thought that was an amazing way to look at, at where we are, is that we still don't know a lot, but we know enough to help in enormous ways. And we're kind of steady as she goes compared to those other sciences. Yeah. No, I, I love that too. And you really speak to that principle that, that Gold Diamond constantly wrote about, about making sure that we're understanding the total person, mm. you know, not just isolating in on one single aspect, but taking a look and accounting for all of these things. And, and it was same exact That's things right. you're talking about. We have to account for your phylogenetic history, your learned history, the current conditions. And, uh, and that right. gives us a, a better direction on how we can actually be effective in helping somebody. And that's unique about us. I think disseminating that is important too, that we're not talking about just one organ or one system. We're talking about total organisms. Yeah. 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 And this marks the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you enjoy listening to the first part of our interview with Dr. Susan Friedman. In the next episode, we will be talking with Dr. Friedman about the constructional approach. Please remember to sign up for the Calc Book Club. Mark your calendar for the Calc Conference coming up from July 25th to July 30th. And to gain access to the Calc Book Club for free, get 50% off registration for the Calc Conference and many more benefits. Please join us at the Calc Membership. If you like our show, please subscribe to our podcast or share it with your friend. And feel free to get more information or reach out to us on our website, caawt.com, our Facebook page, Construction Approach to Animal Welfare and Training, Instagram, but NPO underbar C-A-A-W-T. Or email us at caawtcontact at gmail.com. Thank you again for joining us and two years of amazing support. 
We're looking forward to continue bringing you more fun and thought-provoking content to improve animal welfare, our relationship, and training. We are your host. I am Masa, and I am Sean. Have a wonderful day with your amazing animal companions. <laughs>